Pacifica Radio. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus, in Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950 KTNF, the Progressive Voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, c'est moi, Angie Coiro of In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of these very same stations and streams once a year. America tips its hat to labor. At least most of us know there's a day named after it, and we all get to go on picnics or whatever. How about we actually catch up on what's happening with organized labor? The efforts to fight inequality, the conservative makeup of the Labor Relations Board, and how the Fight for 15 figures into all this. We will give labor extended coverage this hour. A long talk with expert activist and writer Sarah Jaffe, author of the important book, Necessary Trouble. That is coming up later in the show. Also around the corner, James Foreman Jr., the son of two civil rights activists and the author of Locking Up Our Own. I spoke to him within days of the Charlottesville events. First, let us review the headlines, shall we? You regular listeners already know a great deal about interference with voting machines and tallying and the repeated efforts to suppress the votes in liberal and minority districts. Uh, shall we substitute disenfranchise voters in liberal and minority districts? Check out the New York Times Friday piece that focuses on the problems in Durham, North Carolina. Voters being turned away with reported problems with check-in software. Now, that software was from VR Systems, which, in fact, had been hacked by Russians two months earlier. The Times does note there are other conceivable explanations for these voters being disenfranchised, but it also found hacking in 21 states. From the article, after a presidential campaign scarred by Russian meddling, local, state, and federal agencies have conducted little of the type of digital forensic investigation required to assess the impact, if any, on voting in at least 21 states whose election systems were targeted by Russian hackers. According to interviews, get this, with nearly two dozen national security and state officials and election technology specialists. This next bit is not going to be a big surprise for broadcast listeners, but, quote, the assaults on the vast back-end election apparatus, voter registration operations, state and local election databases, e-poll books and other equipment have received far less attention than other aspects of the Russian interference, such as hacking of democratic emails and spreading of false or damaging information about Mrs. Clinton. Yet, 
the hacking of electoral systems was more extensive than previously disclosed, the New York Times found. Beyond VR systems, hackers breached at least two other providers of critical election services well ahead of the 2016 voting, said current and former intelligence officials, speaking, of course, on condition of anonymity, because this information is classified. The officials would not disclose the names of the companies. And finally, intelligence officials in January reassured Americans there was no information, pardon me, no indication, that Russian hackers had altered the vote count on Election Day, the bottom line outcome, but the assurances stopped there. Government officials said they intentionally did not address the security of the back-end election systems, whose disruption could prevent voters from even casting ballots, a.k.a. disenfranchisement. Ironically, there's word from Kenya that their presidential election was tossed out. It is back to the drawing board for the two candidates. You know why? Their Supreme Court cited cited voting, that is, their Supreme Court cited voting irregularities and nullified the vote. Now, I'm not making light of their situation, which has its own intrigue involved, but I'm still jealous. Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe tweeted out, quote, Our Supreme Court has no such power, but, he went on, it did exercise power to stop counting votes in picking Bush over Gore in 2000. And he appended an appropriately skeptical emoticon. A political details more evidence that Donald Trump hasn't the slightest clue about the U.S. budget and the programs that it funds. Their story about budget director Mick Mulvaney. During his populist run for the White House, Trump had vowed to leave Social Security and Medicare alone. But Trump also vowed to rein in America's national debt, which Mulvaney did not think was possible without reining in the two biggest chunks of the federal budget. So Mick the Knife, you gotta love that, Mick the Knife, brought a cut list to his meeting in the Oval. Look, he said, this is my idea on how to reform Social Security. No, the president replied. I told people we wouldn't do that. What's next? Well, here are some Medicare reforms, Mulvaney said. No, Trump repeated. I'm not doing that. Okay, disability insurance. Mulvaney was talking about the Social Security Disability Insurance Program, which, as its full name indicates, is part of Social Security. But Americans don't tend to think of it as Social Security, the article notes, and its 11 million beneficiaries are not the senior citizens who tend to support Trump. Tell me about that, Trump replied. It's welfare, Mulvaney said. Okay, we can fix welfare. Trump declared. Finishing from the article, sure enough, the Trump budget plan that Mulvaney unveiled a few weeks later would cut about $70 billion in disability benefits over a decade, mostly through unspecified efforts to get recipients back to work. So manipulable. Of course, Trump is not just malleable and stupid. He is both of those things, but he is also a showman first and foremost. So there's appropriate skepticism about his pledged donation to the recovery efforts in Texas. I have got to share this with you. 
An excellent post from Walter Schaub. He used to run the U.S. Office of Government Ethics when there were still some residual government ethics. Now, he didn't attribute this, but here we go. If POTUS really does donate $1 million of his own money, not his children's money, not his company's money, not his foundation's money, not money from other donors, to an actual legitimate 501c3 charitable organization, not one that he or his family or his company controls, not his foundation that used donations to buy a portrait of himself, not a trust like the fake blind trust he set up to conceal his own financial conflicts of interest, and provides the public with verifiable proof that he fully completed the transaction in the reasonably near future. Not distributed over 10 years, not whenever the IRS tax audit is completed, not after each individual request for funding from charities or from the victims has been analyzed on a case-by-case basis by his own lawyers. Then I will gladly offer up a genuine thank you to him for donating one one-hundredth of one percent of the $10 billion he purports to have, which would be exactly equivalent to a donation of $100 by a family of four Americans with a home, a retirement plan, and personal savings worth a combined $1 million. Perspective is everything, huh? Just in, now Trump has backed off the border wall again. Now, mind you, this is within 24 hours of word that American taxpayers' money was going to mock-ups of the wall to be constructed by companies going after the wall contract. Now we're getting word from the White House that the $1.6 billion, with a B, dollars in tax money does not have to appear in the continuing resolution to keep government running. The government that Trump was going to shut down if he didn't get his $1.6 billion. But mind you... That darn well better be in the next go-round or the toddler-in-chief will get his wall or he'll hold his breath until he turns blue or something. Not that a lot of us would have any problem with that scenario. More from the news. There are two news stories that point out just how badly police agencies are polluted by the rogues that they allow to run amok. Okay, let me disclose my own bias here. I believe there are good cops. They go to work. They help people. They try to keep the peace. They protect people. And then they go home. They give their lives in service. About 50 every year in the U.S. die in service. But per BBC reporting, the agencies that let us know that don't have to report how many people are killed by the police, either in legally legitimate circumstances or otherwise. Which brings me to my point here. Even the best officers are complicit in the silence and enabling of bad cops and what they do. Even the best perpetuate crimes against the people. I'm guessing you caught that story about the Georgia cop who told a white driver, we only kill black people. He is going to pay no price for his words or his attitude. Greg Abbott immediately put in for retirement, to which he is entitled and which he'll get. And that's it. No possibility of investigation or consequences because at that point he's retired and they don't do that. So it's done. It's over. 
and with a long-standing tradition of police agencies investigating themselves, and no recourse beyond their decisions, we keep hearing these stories. In fact, here's another one. A nurse in Utah was assaulted and handcuffed by a cop for doing her job, for doing her job by the rules. Now, I'm not jumping to conclusions here. This is all on tape, not one, but two tapes, two cameras. These facts are not disputed. Detective Jeff Payne wanted a blood sample from an unconscious patient who was injured in a car crash. Nurse Alex Wubbles pointed out the standing requirements. The patient has to be under arrest, or the police have a warrant, or the patient consents. No one was under arrest. There was no warrant. The patient could not consent, being unconscious. Now, the detective on camera concedes all this, but then Payne claims he's the authority here. The rules be damned, apparently, and he wants that blood drawn. He accuses the nurse of interfering with a criminal case and threatens to take her to jail. He says, I either go away with blood in vials or body in tow. Now, can we stop just a minute here? To fully appreciate the hubris, the Trump-like assertions that this man is not only above the law, he is the law. Think about it. This man, with this attitude, was daily loosed on the people of Salt Lake City. And you cannot tell me that his conceit, his superiority, his flouting of the rules never evinced themselves before this? How many people on the force recognized what kind of officer they were working alongside or under or above? At worst, above. Okay, let's pick up the story here. Nurse Wubbles did what a conscientious employee does. She went to hospital officials, she confirmed her understanding of the rules in force, and she repeated the policy to Payne. Payne grabbed her, yanked her arms behind her to handcuff her, dragged her out of the hospital under arrest. She was screaming while she was pushed into the patrol car. Then Payne vows to another cop on camera that in his second job with an ambulance company, he will bring that hospital all the transients and take the, quote, good people elsewhere. The Salt Lake Tribune provides the kicker here, as though this story needs a kicker. In one simple paragraph, a University of Utah police officer and other officers who provide security for the hospital were present at the time of arrest and did not intervene. Here you are. There's the point. Once again, atop case after case, people charged with knowing and executing the rules and defending the peace and freedoms of the populace stood around and watched. Sure, you point out, okay, well, this, is, this was a university police officer and some security officers at the hospital, and they didn't have the authority to intervene with an actual cop. Well, if the actual cop had been there alone with no other cops, that would be relevant. 
but he wasn't. Now, we know from The Thin Blue Line and Serpico and lots of other books and movies and news reports, this is not the exception. It's the way it works. Somehow, newbie officers who go in with a genuine desire to be there for the people learns that first, he or she is there for their comrades first, first above all, undoubtedly aware that consequences are way too few and way too limited in reach. Okay, this is an admittedly unscientific impression, but they're ironically the ones in the majority, to my eyes. They're like the justice-minded people who work in a job who know that a union could offer everyone on that floor a decent living if only they would unite. They need to express the strength in their numbers. Because where the police are concerned, the mud and the blood are splashing on their uniforms. Coming up on the broadcast, a conversation with union journalist and activist Sarah Jaffe. She's the author of Necessary Trouble. We're going to get a snapshot of where unions stand under the Trump regime. That is next on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. Progressive media outlets have been under attack for years, even during supposedly progressive administrations. We are now facing a whole new world, and real alternatives to the mainstream corporate media must be able to continue the fight for all of us. This is not a drill. It never was. Please consider a donation to our work here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com donate to help out however you can. A monthly pledge is greatly appreciated, but anything you can share will keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Coiro in for Brad today. It is the long Labor Day weekend. You will not be able to stay home, brother. For most of us, we're not hearing about the 1911 Triangle Shirtwaist Fire or the 1930s West Coast Waterfront Strike or the 1886 Haymarket debacle or, for that matter, of Harry Bridges, Mother Jones, Lucy Parsons. Mostly, for all of us, this is a three-day weekend under any other name. But you'll note that the above-mentioned events all happened in America's deepest troughs of have-have-not inequality. And we are pretty damn deep in that trough right now. So let's get the lowdown on where we stand on organizing, legislation, and appeals, and defying Donald Trump and his troops. Sarah Jaffe is an obvious go-to here. She is on the labor beat full-time. She's the author of the book Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, the labor lowdown that is coming out in its new paperback version, November 5th. Sarah, it is good to talk to you again. 
it is very good to talk to you again. I bring everyone good tidings because you and I were just chatting a few minutes ago, <laughs> and I was all ready to say, oh, you know, woe is us, labor's not getting any attention, and you actually had good news on that line, so dive right in. Yeah, there was a poll that came out this week that showed actually uh, organized labor is as popular with Americans as it has been in a couple of decades. It's something like 61% of people in this country approve of that. And I said that's, you know, not quite twice Trump's approval rating, but it's certainly significantly better than the approval rating of Trump, Congress, and, you know, most politicians in the country. Whether we can turn that into uh, concrete organizing victories is a whole other set of questions, but... You know, it does say that there is an understanding among people in this country that unions, you know, we say are the people that brought you the weekend. They brought you this long weekend. But yes. bring a lot of other good besides. Yeah, let's let's dive into that a little bit because it's good yeah. news, but it's unexpected news. So what do you think has raised the profile and the approval of the whole idea of organized labor? It is an interesting question, right? Because, you know, under Trump, labor has kind of a mixed record. But the thing that has been certainly true is that there have been very visible, um, very, in many cases, dramatic labor campaigns over the last couple of years that have really made more people think about unions. And that comes along with a time when most people's economic conditions are not getting any better if they're not actively getting worse. Mm -hmm. And so when you look around and you look at, you know, the economy is stagnant and, you know, Trump wants to tell us that everything is getting great and America is becoming great again. But, you know, for a lot of people, they know the reality of their life is that that's not true. And so when you look around and you're looking at your job and you're looking at your coworkers and you're looking at the other options out there, maybe you don't like your job and you're thinking about quitting, but all you see are more jobs like the one you've got now, you start to think more about, well, how do we make this job that I've got that I might be stuck with for a while better? And the, you know, the number one way you do that is you organize. Um, so, you know, combine things like the fight for 15, um, the prominence of that, the prominence of going back to, you know, 2011, early 2011, the Wisconsin um, union fights, the struggles that are going on in places right now, like Missouri, where uh, the Republicans took over in the last election and promptly rolled back the minimum wage increase that St. Louis had passed, um, a rare sort of lowering of the minimum wage. But people are are really fighting that. And they also passed a right to work law in Missouri and unions just turned in something like 300,000 signatures to overturn that on the ballot next time. So, you know, we, we see a lot of state level and local level labor fights that are happening and are making people wake up, I guess, to what is, you know, the best way to challenge the rotten conditions that we still too many of us find ourselves in. Well, it sounds like part of that waking up is is trying to get around and successfully getting around that idea that Trump and the Republicans have pushed for a long time is, yeah, you don't have a good way to live because of those Mexicans, because of those people. You know, they're taking your jobs away. Yeah. And somehow that yeah. message has been countered, successfully countered. Where's that where's that positive messaging coming from? Yeah, and you know, the labor movement has really not had the greatest record on that front, right? right For many, right. many years, going back to like the Chinese Exclusion Acts, right? That the labor movement was, you know, susceptible to arguments blaming immigrants, blaming outsiders. And it's only been in recent years that, you know, the leadership at the highest levels and, and you know, the biggest unions at the AFL-CIO have really said, like, this was a wrong tack for us to take, and we really have to actually organize because if we leave people out, if you allow there to be, you know, these, a, a super exploitable group of workers at the bottom, whether that's undocumented workers or others, 
then that actually drives down wages and conditions for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but since then, they've done a better job of actually organizing around this trend of organizing undocumented workers alongside workers who are U.S. citizens. Um, And we have to talk about, you know, the power of the organized resistance among immigrant communities that we've seen since Trump was elected. Um, Mm -hmm. Places like Milwaukee, which just um, some of the same people just managed to get rid of their uh, very, very right-wing sheriff also led a really impressive day without an immigrant a few months ago where they had something like 40,000 people in the streets of Milwaukee um, who had walked off the job, who were protesting Trump's rhetoric and their Sheriff David Clark's rhetoric. Um, And of course, Governor Scott Walker, once again, since we're talking about Wisconsin, um, you've seen that across the country. And in a lot of places, these days without an immigrant were, you know, a little bit outside of the normal circle of people who were organizing. You saw people who had more had been you know more likely to sort of keep their heads down finally say enough is enough we contribute to this country and we're tired of being told that we are just you know we just need to be deported that we're criminals that we're violent that we're scary we're actually going to come out and fight back and mm-hmm. so you know the respect for immigrants as workers is partly because that's one of the ways that they've been able to make their power felt mhm You know, you brought up the fight for 15 earlier, and that's Mm -hmm. raised visibility so beautifully. I mean, the people that we see behind Mm -hmm. the counters at every fast food joint in the world and and other low-wage jobs, and we're seeing them as people, we're seeing them as as fighters trying to make their way in the world and take everybody else up with them. What's Mm -hmm. been the corporate response to that? I mean, I'm I'm imagining, for example, Burger King is here, they're remodeling their biggest store. What are the odds that when Burger King reopens here that they're actually going to pay a decent wage? Oh, they're not going to do it at all. Um, Anywhere, I mean, one of the things that happened is the fight for 15 sort of started out as 15 in a union, right? And it was intended to be, I think, a demand on the employers and perhaps a demand to try to get um, McDonald's or Burger King, the, the big, you know, multinational corporation at the top of these things to actually bargain and set wages across their franchises. What's actually ended up happening is that politicians have been the ones to act. And so you've seen minimum wages go up um, in some places to and even over $15 an hour. Um because that's been the way that it's changed. The, the corporations really have um, not been willing to do that unless forced to. The only exception there, and again, as a result of a very targeted campaign, is Walmart sort of claims it voluntarily raised its wages. What actually happened is Walmart got a lot of bad press because the Walmart workers went on strike again. Um, and so you really, you know, we have we see right now and this is not just the case in, in fast food or anything else, that um, across the spectrum of the workforce, right, university presidents are also trying to wait out Trump's NLRB um, ruling in their favor against the workers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you definitely see people who did not want to pay higher wages or give union contracts to their workers just kind of trying to wait until, you know, Trump's labor board overturns some rules that the Obama labor board made to essentially allow them to exploit their workers more. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, we have to think about what's going to happen here. There's a, you know, a push, there's a a case that's going to be considered in front of the Supreme Court that could gut public sector collective bargaining rights, make everywhere look like Wisconsin. Um, There are, you know, there's a push to have a national right to work bill. Um, These are things that we, 
you know, the labor movement has to really consider what it's going to look like. And the Fight for 15 is also an example of a campaign that didn't go through the NLRB election process, but that actually was premised on winning over the public and winning power in whatever way it could to improve conditions for workers. What's the status on those two uh, two moves, trying to get a national right to work in the other one that you mentioned? Where, where do they stand in the process now? Well, you know, thankfully, this Congress hasn't been able to do much of anything, like despite the fact that Republicans <laughs> control both branches of Congress and the presidency. I mean, control might be a strong word for the presidency, but um, they really haven't been able to do much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now Trump is threatening to shut down the government over his border wall. Um, <laughs> but so really, you know, they haven't cast much of anything and unclear, you know, why they haven't pushed a a national right to work bill. I'm sure Trump would sign it um, other than that they couldn't get it through, you know, a Senate that could theoretically filibuster it. Um, So, you know, the real question there is, is right. Like anything that would have to go through Congress, um, there's not much they can do. The Supreme Court, on the other hand, is also in the hands of the conservatives. And it is, you know, I would imagine that they are just waiting to, you know, destroy union rights as soon as they actually can get their hands on it. You know, there's something interesting happening out here, Sarah, and I I don't know how much science there is on this yet. But here in the Bay Area, we are one of the most expensive places to live in the world. And more and more people are leaving the San Francisco Bay Area and California as a whole. Mm -hmm. And one thing you can't miss, you go into any downtown and every company that relies on service employees has help wanted, you know, help wanted cooks, help wanted servers, Mm -hmm. help wanted clerks, every single store, because no one can live here on what those jobs pay. And I seem to recall something much like that happening with an earlier you know, huge economy that subsequently fell. And I, I don't know how much that raises the awareness of the people who do have money. They are reliant on the people who do service jobs. Well, and it's fascinating, right? Because, you know, theoretically, classical economic, uh, economics tells us that if you can't get workers for the wage you want to pay, you have to raise the wage, except they sort of insist on not doing that. Right. right? Yes. And so we've seen this these things we've seen wages sort of decoupled from any of the principles that they are supposed to adhere to, right? And so you hear all these bosses complaining about how they can't get help. They can't get help at minimum wage, mm-hmm. and they won't make a higher offer. Um, and you know, we we're also talking about the Bay Area. You also have some of the highest minimum wages in the country. Literally, in Emeryville, have the highest minimum wage in the country. Oh, I didn't know um, that. Yep. And so you have people who are you know, getting paid as well as they can be in this country at the at the bottom level, but the bosses aren't willing to raise the wage past that bottom level on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, on some level, when you're talking about small businesses, they do have legitimate pressures, right? They do have rent that is astronomical. They do have actual, you know, costs. But still, right, when you look at the, the cost of housing, um, you know, even a $15 an hour minimum wage isn't going to pay for somebody to have an apartment in San Francisco. Right. So then you're looking at transportation that's, you know, 40, 45 minutes, maybe longer. Um, you're looking at, you know, however many hours that eats up out of your day, right? That, you mm-hmm. know, if you're spending 40 minutes to an hour commuting each way, then that's, you know, that's an extra two hours that you're basically working, except you're not getting paid. Exactly. And so, you know, these are these are real questions that cities are going to have to deal with which is if they don't want to come up with a way for people 
at low wages to afford housing, then people aren't going to do those jobs. And the managers are going to have to either figure out a way to raise the wage to get people to come work for them or, you know, they're going to keep having those help wanted signs in the window. Mm. I have one more question for you because you mentioned the National Labor Relations Board. And you and I were discussing how low profile most news about labor is. And I wonder how many people really understand how that works. We look at the Supreme Court and we already know that we have a Trump print on the Supreme Court that is not going to go away even if he does. How much impact has he had on the makeup of the National Labor Relations Board and how much can he potentially have before we get him the hell out of there? Yeah, well, I mean, he gets to appoint some people to that board, and that means it's going to have a conservative majority, and that means, or it already does, their rulings on these things are going to go generally the way you would think that a Trump ruling would go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that has a lot of effect on on different cases, right? For instance, I mentioned university precedents because um, graduate student workers right. won the right to organize finally after protracted battles from a ruling from the Obama and LRB. And now, you know, like I said, university presidents are basically stalling in a lot of cases, refusing to bargain with their employees and just waiting for the Trump and LRB to hear a case and overturn that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you look at that and, and you say, like, maybe this process is just not going to be the way we do things anymore. Right. Um, the process that was set up under the New Deal is going to be picked further and further apart under this administration. We don't know exactly how far it'll go because that's up to, you know, the whims of the, you know, five ghouls on the Supreme Court. But we are looking at a a significant change in the way that we do things by the end of this administration, Um, hopefully in a little over three years, maybe um, potentially longer than that. And so labor really has a lot of thinking to do about what kinds of campaigns it can run, what kinds of organizing it can do outside of this framework that is just going to get harder and harder to use. Right, right. Sarah, as always, I'm a huge admirer of your work, and thanks for carving out some time for me. Thank you for having me. And you can find Sarah's work online at sarahljaffe.com, Sarah with an H, L-J-A-F-F-E.com. Now, if you did not memorize that, Take heart, it is linked online with today's show at bradblog.com. Coming up, James Foreman Jr. on Charlottesville, Trump, and his book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. I'm Angie Coiro. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. Brad and Desi are taking the day off. I'm Angie Coiro sitting in. They'll be back next time around. James Foreman Jr. was born to civil rights activists, so he grew up acutely aware of right and wrong and justice denied. He's a law professor now, but he did do his time in the trenches as a public defender, and that is where he saw black America 
judges, police, attorneys, legislators, enacting and perpetuating the inequality that keeps people of color disproportionately represented in jails and prisons, and subsequently lacking the power of employment or even voting. Thus his book, Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America. Now, I was already set to interview him before events erupted in Charlottesville, and we sat down just two days later. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. You've been out on the road with your book for some time, and right in the middle of that, neo-Nazis march through an American city, and the president seems to have issues finding out where the problem is there. Someone is literally killed. How has that played out for you as, as an author talking to people about your book? Well, these are issues. The issues that are coming up now are things that I've been thinking about, I've been writing about, we've been talking about in the black community you know, for a long time. And I know my Jewish brothers and sisters have been having these conversations for a long time. I wrote, when I was in law school, I wrote a law review article, uh, a note, I'm sorry, a note, a student note, which is like a short article that law students write. And it was called Driving Dixie Down, Removing the Confederate Flag from Southern State Capitals. And that was written in 1992. My motivation for writing about it was my own experience growing up in Atlanta, Georgia, going to an almost all black high school, living in a majority black neighborhood. And the Georgia flag back then was basically the Confederate flag, 90, 80% with like the state seal of Georgia in the corner. And we would sit in our homeroom in English class, getting ready to read whoever we were going to read, Baldwin, Hansberry, you name it. And I would watch the African-American groundskeeper at my school raise up the flags every morning. The United States, our national flag, then the Georgia state flag, then the flag of the Atlanta public schools. And the obscenity of the fact that we were forced to raise and watch the raising of a flag that was a flag of treason and a flag of, of slavery and a flag of race hatred. And that we were just supposed to understand this is like part of our, our obligation. You know, Brian Stevenson says, and I couldn't agree with him more. He says that we, these monuments and these flags belong here no more than statues to Hitler belong in Germany. I think the New York Times really nailed it nicely, the summarizing of the book. They said that what truly the book is about, what makes it tragic to the bone, how people acting with the finest of intentions and the largest of hearts could create a problem even more grievous than the one they were trying to solve. The story that you open up with, the defendant that you were representing as a public defender, he's a, a young kid. He's, you've made a very good case that he should be kept out of the penal system, and he ends up going in there anyway. And as you relate that story, your anger against the system that's doing this to him is pretty palpable, and you do note that everybody in the room is black. And over the arc of the book, you do understand the good intentions as badly aimed and as horribly messy it turned out to be, you understand these are not people who are self-hating, self-loathing. These are people who are trying to do the right thing. Yeah, that, that was the hardest thing for me in writing the book was trying to 
understand the motivations to get myself into a space where I could empathize with and be compassionate towards and really try to understand people on their terms when I knew the outcome, when I knew that they had done, made decisions that I thought either were, you know, in some cases mistakes at the time and certainly mistakes now in retrospect. And so, and that's just super hard. I just, I don't know. It's super hard to do as a writer, especially when you're writing about something where the stakes are so high and where you care so much. It wasn't like I, I found some new topic that I hadn't been involved in, right? I had a career as a public defender, as an activist, as someone that was speaking out about the brutality and the harshness of our criminal justice system. And then I have to try to go back and put myself in the space of people that made those decisions and be empathetic towards them. There's a way in which it's so easy to point the finger at the people that we know from the historical record were really like up to no good, you know, Richard Nixon, war on drugs, explicitly strategizing as a way to use crime to talk about race when you couldn't talk about race anymore in that same way, Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan. But I don't think actually, like if you go around this country and I talk to lawyers and people that are in the court system, they'll tell you that there's a lot of good, well-meaning people that they encounter on a day-to-day basis in these court systems that are nonetheless doing things that are harmful. And that's a way in which I think, starting with African-American characters, many of whom did have the best intentions, actually opens up a light onto the criminal justice system more broadly. I was just talking to public defenders in San Francisco yesterday, and most of the people in that system right, are not, not. Most of the people that are making the decisions, the judges, the prosecutors, are not African-American. But it's a city full of self-identified liberals that nonetheless are running a criminal justice system where a city with 6% of the population being black, 56% of the jail is black. So... To understand how that happened, you actually do have to go deeper than just these people are evil and don't care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned there's opening scene in the book where I'm representing this young man and the judge is African-American, both the lawyers, the defense lawyer and the prosecutor African-American, my client is African-American. The paradox of that story, right, is how is it that this community with all of these African-Americans in leadership positions ends up doing so many of the same things that the nation was doing over the last 50 years. But the assumption that's built into that story is that we're all alike. Like we all have this thing in common, right? Which is that we're all black. And therefore it's paradoxical that we would be so harsh towards this black defendant who we all have this commonality with. But there's another way of thinking about that story, which is from the perspective of my client and the people that I represented, maybe we're not all alike because everybody else in the court system, the public defender, the lawyer, the prosecutor, the judge, the bailiff, the they might we might be African-American, but there's a class difference between the people that are professionals running the system and the people who the system is acting upon. Mm-hmm. And you see that throughout you know, every statistic that we have. I mean, probably the best one to make the point 
is this. If you're a black man who drops out of high school, you are 10 times more likely to go to prison in your lifetime than if you're a black man that's gone to college. And given everything we know about class and it, how it relates to educational attainment, that tells you that the people that are making decisions, the people that are passing the laws, the legislators in this book, they're people that have gone to college. There are many of them have gone to law school, but they're passing laws that are affecting the part of the community that is the most disenfranchised, the most impoverished. And so one of the things that I'm always wrestle with in this book is recognizing at the same time, recognizing the commonality that we have in the African-American community and this sense of shared fate or linked fate, this idea that what happens to you matters to me. Mm -hmm. We're all in this together. And that's true and that's real and that's powerful. But it's also true that some of these systems impact parts of our community in ways different from how they impact the rest of us. I'm going to stop, except the last thing I want to say is everything that I just said about the black community is also true about white America. You can go to states and you walk in the prisons. Most of the people that you're going to see in, this, in that prison are white. But here's the other thing about those people. They're all poor. You start early on in the book talking about the history of the drug war and how that led to some of these very bad decisions being made. We have a parallel problem going on right now. I mean, there's a drug epidemic right now. Yes. Yes. It, when we talk about what's happen, happening today with heroin and opioids, to me, there's kind of two things that we have to keep really front and center when we think about it through the lens of race. One is that it's important that we identify and name the fact that we are not responding to this current drug crisis in the way that we responded to the crack cocaine crisis in the 80s and 90s. With all that is happening, you don't see any push to pass massive new mandatory minimums in Congress, right? Congress was rushing in the 80s to pass these mandatory minimums in response to the crack epidemic. There's nothing like that happening now. And the, and the reason is race. The reason is that um, we're not prepared to treat the mostly white, poor opioid addicts in the same way that we were prepared to throw away the African-American crack addicts. At the same time, and this gets to my point about class in white America, at the same time, it's also true that while we're not treating those opioid addicts and heroin addicts in rural California and eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania and Kentucky and West Virginia the way we were the crack users, we also are being plenty, plenty mean to them. We're not passing new mandatory minimums, that's true. But the Trump budget and the Republican Congress's plan on health care would have eviscerated the mental health treatment and drug treatment programs that those poor white communities are relying on. So this is the old rope. They, they're, these people are being bamboozled. They're, Trump is running on, I got you. And then the first thing he does when he gets in office is they're proposing health legislation that's going to lead to more addiction in those very same communities. So this is the, this is the way that race and class work together. And, we, all, and we, we have to remember that there is no group of people to whom we are more callous and more hateful and more neglectful than poor black people in this country. Mm -hmm.
So let's talk about how, we'll take an example of the many systems you talk about. The war on drugs mm. and the arguments over whether drugs were best dealt with as something that people should be punished for, dealing with the drug dealers, bringing in methadone as something to you know actually treat the issue of drug addiction itself. How did the issue of black Americans making the situation worse for their own people play out there? So the, the first chapter of the book is about marijuana decriminalization, which was an issue that was put on the table in Washington, D.C. in 1975. So you have the first majority black locally elected city council coming into office, and they have the power to decide whether marijuana should remain criminal, criminal or not. And a guy named Dave Clark, city council member, white guy, one of the two whites on the 13-member council, proposes this decriminalization. The opposition to marijuana decriminalization comes from two sources principally. The first are African-American ministers. Black church, which was very powerful at the time in local in city politics, more powerful than it is today as an institution. And the second was a black nationalist city council member who was also a pastor by the name of Doug Moore. Now, what's fascinating about their, the history is you said up front, you said, you know, these people aren't, you know, I, I don't remember the phrase you used, race traders or... Mm -hmm. Self-loathing. Self-loathing, self right. Like Doug Moore was elected as a representative of the poor African-American members in Washington in, uh, community in D.C. He ran as a man of the people. He was endorsed by the, there was a union of prisoners. They endorsed two candidates in the race, Marion Barry and Doug Moore. But, but here's the thing. They saw the damage that heroin had done in black communities in the 1960s. And they were afraid that marijuana would serve as a gateway drug to heroin. This was just a few years later. And this was a real threat. Jackie Robinson, the baseball great, he went around to black churches and community centers across America in the early 70s as marijuana decriminalization was first starting to be discussed. And he came to D.C. And he said, listen, I know y'all are talking about decriminalization. But let me explain to you that my son, Jackie Jr., is a heroin addict. And he got started with marijuana. That was his first drug that he used. So it's, we know more now. There's more scientific evidence now than was available at the time. But this idea of marijuana as a gateway drug to heroin was very, rare, very real. And there was another consideration. It wasn't just that they were worried about marijuana as a gateway drug. It was also, and understand this, they got in a deep way the way racism infected every aspect of American society. But for them, that was a reason not to decriminalize marijuana because they said, those white kids in the suburbs, yeah, they can go, they can get high. And they'll recover. Their parents have assets. They can find a drug treatment program if they need to. They're not going to get busted with weed in their locker by the principal of the school because their parents run the school board. But our kids, they, we can't afford to have our kids using that drug because we have to be twice as good. We have less margin for error. 
because of racism. So they were super clear-eyed about the role that racism plays in America, but it didn't lead to the conclusion that we might think it would have today. And the last thing to understand is how they underestimated the force of later events, right? So when they vote not to decriminalize marijuana, they don't know that five years later, Congress is going to pass legislation making it so that if you have a drug conviction, you can't get student loans and you can't get access to public housing. And they, they don't know about the technological revolution that's going to mean that today we can, with the push of a button, pull up your prior record from back into the 70s. A guy just wrote me a letter saying, uh, wrote me an email saying, I just applied for benefits in South Dakota or North South Dakota, I think it was. And they sell, tell me that I have a marijuana conviction from Washington, D.C. in 1972. And I, I heard you on the radio talking about D.C. history. And I'm wondering if you can help me. Think about that. Today it came up in a record check. So that's part of the point about the unintended consequences is that they don't realize at the time they're making this decision, they can't realize all these subsequent events that are going to make the decision to criminalize marijuana so damaging to the black community over time. You talked earlier about the vestiges of slavery. And you said that we haven't had a reckoning. What would a reckoning look like? <laughs> okay. <laughs> For starters, it would be this. For starters, it would be that it would be much easier for me to go find a monument to people who fought against slavery and people who were slaves than it is for me to find a monument for people who were slaveholders or fought for slavery. Can anybody envision right now a monument, a public monument for slave rebellions and people who resisted against slavery? There's a couple, there's a couple, something at Harper's Ferry. When I graduated law school, I left Georgia with a Confederate flag flying high as our state flag. I drove through Alabama which had the Confederate flag, a flag of treason, a flag of racism, a flag of slavery on its state capital. Then I drove into Mississippi to Jackson, and there were Confederate memorials in Jackson. So I was driving from Atlanta to Los Angeles. I was working a law clerk in L.A., and I wanted to, does anybody remember Take Back the Night protests, right? When I was in college, Take Back the Night, it was, it was a series of marches and speeches and protests organized uh, overwhelmingly by women uh, with some male allies to stand against sexual assault and violence and take back the night and have the night not be a place of fear. So this was my take back the South drive. Because <laughs> my dad was very, very traumatized and terrorized by all of the violence that he had suffered in the South. But I wanted to go to Money, Mississippi. Does anybody know what happened in Money, Mississippi? Emmett Till. Emmett Till was killed in Money, Mississippi. So I was trying to find Money, Mississippi, and I drove to Money, Mississippi, but then I was like, then I was at the next town. 
And I, there, there was a store at the next town and I pulled over and I said, I'm trying to find money, Mississippi. And the guy was like, why do you want to find money, Mississippi? And I wasn't going to tell the guy. <laughs> it wasn't that kind of guy. <laughs> he said, you got to go back. He said, when you go back and you're going to see a trailer on the right after some trees and that's the post office and that's money. So I drove back down the state highway, one lane in each direction. And I almost drove through money again, but I stopped. And then I went into the post office, the trailer in the post office. And there's an African-American woman working in the post office. And I said, okay, is there anything like a monument? I'm trying to look to her like a monument for Emmett Till. And she said, nah. She said, no, there's, you know, the NAACP down the road was talking about it a couple of years ago, but no, there's no monument. There's no monument to Emmett Till, but we have the Confederate flag flying all over these Southern state capitals. So the reckoning would look like remembering this history and publicly commemorating this history when they keep talking about tearing down the monuments. Like, it's too bad that the Republicans have messed up with this repeal and replace. They've like, because it's a really good phrase, but I want to tear down and replace. But my point is that for every single one of these Confederate monuments, I don't want them just torn down. I do. Today would be better than tomorrow. We can go to museums to look at, I'm all for studying the history. We can go to the museum and look at the, I want them to be in the museums. And I actually also want, in the museum that has the monument, I also want to have placards describing not just the monument and what is a monument to, but how the decision was made to build the monument. Because the, because the for example, the Georgia state flag, you know, the Confederate flag, when was the George, when did the Confederate flag become part of the Georgia state flag? 54. What happened in 54? Brown v. Board of Education. Yeah, two months later. So I want that to be in the museum because we actually need, because that's an important part of the history too. So you want the statue, you want how a choice was made and what the political context in which the statute was enacted and how that itself was another monument to racism and white supremacy. Then you want the panels about how it was taken down and why. I want all that to be in the museum. But in place of the monuments, I want monuments to abolition. And I want monuments to white, black, and every other color that participated, native, in the struggle to end slavery and to create equality. And I want Emmett Till's monument there too. The rest of my chat with James Foreman Jr. is online at indeepradio.com and I will link to that in today's show post at bradblog.com. And that does it for today's installment of the Bradcast. Brad Friedman and Desi Doyam will be back for the next go round. Thank you for tuning in. Now more than ever, good luck world. Good luck world.